the best word I can give to describe the feeling was freedom. I wanted to get up here and do one of those William Wallace freedom calls this morning, but didn't want to scare you. Let me explain what was going on. Ingrid and I were in Boston for denominational meetings, and Monday evening we went out to dinner. It was raining, and I'm sure I was grumbling, and I said something about why are we still living in the north and all of those things went through the conference, and Wednesday morning, I came out of the hotel, and it hit me. It was warm summer air. I couldn't believe it. It changed the smells of the earth and everything. Put the top down on my car, started driving. I could hear the birds singing. I'm working on my suntan early in May. This is just good. Get on to 95, only about five minutes, and came to a complete halt. I didn't care. I was in a traveling tanning booth. I just turned ZZ Top a little louder, and I just went on. It felt like all the shackles of winter came off in one moment. And I wasn't alone. Other people who didn't have convertibles, their hands were doing this out the window. You know how you do when the weather changes? Friends sitting on each side, pretending they're birds that were flying down the road. Ingrid starts reading me tweets and Facebook quotes. We were all feeling it. Freedom! (laughs) From the shackles of winter. We enter into three-week series as we move to Pentecost on the work of the Holy Spirit. And if I were to depict the work of the Holy Spirit, the outworking of God in this world, I would choose freedom as one of the words. Freedom, flourishing, and fruitfulness. Why is that important to me? In my journey, I started in a holiness movement. And when people spoke of the Holy Spirit in the circles that I grew up in, I became afraid because he was so holy, he was going to stomp out all the life out of me. But my experience with the Holy Spirit as I've walked with God over these years is that He wants to bring freedom and flourishing and fruitfulness to our lives. The Celts got it. They referred to the Holy Spirit as the wild goose. If you wonder why the goose is represented in their artwork so often, it's because they saw the Holy Spirit as this working. He cannot be tamed. For some of us, it almost feels sacrilegious that we would refer to the dove as the wild goose. But think about it. God is not afraid of images that would, we could pour false meaning into. He's not afraid of an image of himself as the father and the son. He's not afraid of himself as a hovering mother hen. He's not afraid of himself as a wooing lover. Those images do not contain him, and they don't exp- express him completely. And yet this image of God that is the most brilliant out of the Trinity is that of the Holy Spirit. He's referred to as wind, as fire, as breath, as cloud, as water, as new wine. That's who the Holy Spirit is. We get stuck when we try to describe Him, when we, He escapes our thick theological terms. That's why so many of us fell in love with the shack. Theologians cringed under it, but those of us who long for the freedom of God came alive under the image because we want God to be that personable to us. We want to experience Him in the bounty of who He is. Grasping the Holy Spirit is like putting our hands like this and saying to someone, pour water so I can hold it. 
He is so powerful. He's the dynamite of God, dunamis of God. And yet, Frederick Bruner, the greatest theologian on the Holy Spirit that we've had in the past century, calls him the shy member of the Trinity. So for three weeks, we're going to press into the work of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because everything God does in this world and in our lives and in this church is the outworking of His presence by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we will get a hold of this, it will release us to a new level of freedom and flourishing and fruitfulness that He wants to express in our lives. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the beginning, time as we know it and this creation as we know it. We could spend hours just on that one phrase. God created a word chosen in Hebrew that's only used for God in His creative power. He creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. You and I co-create with God, but we take the stuff that He gave to us and we shape it so that it's a reflection of His glory. God speaks it into existence. He's personable, He's engaged, and yet He's outside of uh, creation. He's the self-revealer. We wouldn't have any of this unless He told us about it. Science will get us so far back, but we have to have a beginning point. And God, as the communicator, tells us He spoke and everything came into existence. And then this phrase that's the launch of our Holy Spirit series, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You could read here, the Spirit of God was hovering over the chaos, because the waters meant the unformed, chaotic world around the ancient people. Now, let me just stop here for a moment and just do a teaching moment. Many of you got this in Western civilization in school, but you'll remember all societies had creation myths. And there's similarities between the ancient Sumerian and Babylonian creation myths and the Hebrew creation myth. But there's a distinct difference. Those myths had polytheism and the gods fighting, and it was out of the foment with tails whipping all over the place and all of these descriptions that we were birthed in chaos. It was the result of the gods. There's no order to it. The Hebrew creation story is different. It's setting up this aspect of order that God has brought into the world, and the Spirit hovers over the chaos. Now, that's going to mean something to you to the degree of chaos that's in your life today. When there's chaos in our lives, we want to know that God is hovering. And God reveals Himself in this way. Now, we could go forward into the rest of Scripture and see that the whole Trinity is involved in creation. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, We are in mysterious place. I, I can't explain the Trinity any better now than when I came out of seminary, but I experience the manifestation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so much more that I'm convinced even before I came out of seminary of God's presence. But God couldn't reveal himself completely as Trinity in the beginning because it was a polytheistic world. They would have been confused. They had to be repre- God had to be represented to the Hebrew people, first of all, as one. 
even though he comes in manifestation of three personalities, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's clues of the Trinity in the text. God creates, and it's the Spirit hovering. God uses the plural pronoun at the end of this to say, we are created in their image, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's this expression, there's an unfolding of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't get complete until Jesus brings teaching to us. Are you following me now? So this morning, I simply want to walk you through the biblical scriptures to show you how the Holy Spirit gets manifest to us. Because the Holy Spirit isn't just in the New Testament, He's been there from the beginning. Every time God is going to do a new work, there is a manifestation of the hovering of the Spirit over His people and what He's about to do. So God creates an order, and we introduce chaos again. Genesis 3. In rebellion to God's way, chaos comes in. Driven by dark angels, we agree with their system rather than God's system. And we don't hear much about the Holy Spirit until Genesis chapter 6. The Word says this, God said, how long will my spirit contend or be with humans? A flood comes, and in Genesis chapter 8, it says, and God released a wind over the waters. Now, lots of Bible scholars in this church, you're a fun group to preach to, you know what the Hebrew word for spirit is, it's ruach. It's one of those great ones, it'll give you a sore throat if you do it enough times. What's the word for wind? Ruach. What's the word for breath? Ruach. So when it says that God sent a wind over the waters, ruach, it's the Holy Spirit bringing order out of the chaos that's there. And to give us another clue, we won't know this till many centuries later, the peace offering from God comes from a dove from heaven, right? We're getting set up for how God is going to tell this story. Things move on, the new family that's chosen gets in trouble, there's chaos, Joseph is uh, imprisoned in um, Egypt, God gives him favor, he rises through the line, and one day Pharaoh, a pagan leader, says, has there anyone ever been created who has God's spirit on him like this man Joseph? And we begin to see that God starts releasing his spirit into the chaos. The people are going to need to learn how to worship, and so they need a tabernacle, and the elements are brought together. Bezalel, the first one, we're told, who put the Holy Spirit is put upon and filled so that he can help lead the people into worship. Moses is trying to lead the people as best as he can, but he's not doing very well, and his father-in-law comes to him. We always love when our father-in-law and our father, mother-in-law come to us. <laughs> and he says, Moses, this isn't working because you're trying to be the only instrument. You need to create 70 leaders who will be used by God. And then God says this to Moses, I am going to take some of the Holy Spirit that's on you and I'm going to put it on those 70 leaders. And the unfolding of God, for whatever reason, in the design of his scripture, he keeps pouring his spirit out upon leaders to help them lead the people to the next phase. The judges have the spirits poured out upon them. The kings have the spirit of God poured out upon them through the anointing of the prophets who have the Holy Spirit poured out upon them. David and Saul, two great stories. Both start with the same equipment. 
Both are filled with the Holy Spirit with an anointing, but Saul tries to do it his way. He loses the Spirit, but David is anointed and uh, rushed forward by God to lead the people into their full identity. The prophets begin pointing to a messianic figure who is going to come, whose God's Spirit will be poured on. There's this image of the hovering of the Spirit. In fact, it's going to be so strong that there will become a day when God's Spirit is poured out on all flesh. Even your sons and daughters will begin prophesying in those days. And there's an anticipation, but then there's a long period of silence. And it's like chaos again. And the people are starting to doubt the promises of God. And we open up our New Testament and there's a virgin girl whom the Lord says His grace is upon. And how is His grace upon her? The Spirit will come upon you and you will give birth to a son. The son grows up and we don't hear much about him except that he does some carpentry work for his, with his father. But the day comes for the Lord to initiate his salvation process in this earth. He sends them into the baptismal waters. You remember the story well. The heavens open. The Father says, This is my Son whom I love and well pleased. And the Spirit descends on him like a dove. Jesus passes that Spirit on to his followers by breathing on them. And he says, Wait in Jerusalem. And this is what we are going towards in three weeks, Pentecost. The Holy Spirit pours out on all of the church, each one of us. So that God's salvation work would be accomplished in this world. And since that time, God has been pouring His Spirit out, waiting for His people to be open vessels for what He wants to do. It's written in the text right from Genesis 1, and it goes right through to the end. This is God's work in our world. So what's my so what this morning? I think God has a fresh work for us today. Every year we preach on the Holy Spirit for three weeks going up to Pentecost. Why do we do that? Because Pentecost was not only a historical reality, it was a promised reality for the church through the ages that if we will simply open ourselves to the work of God, He will pour freedom and flourishing and fruitfulness through us in ways that we never dreamed possible. I've watched it happen in your lives. And I think God has something new for us today and something new for us at church in the days ahead. But here's the deal on the Holy Spirit. He's a gentleman. He will not force his way into our lives. He's simply waiting for us as vessels who are prepared to say, come and have your way. Paul said, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe that's our privilege every day. But I do think there are moments of baptisms in our life where the Lord says, I want to pour something new into you because I have new assignments and new places and new kingdom release that I want to bring in your life. I don't know who that is for in this season, sitting here individually. I anticipate what he has for us as a church. There's some great things coming down the road but it's only to those who make themselves available to the Holy Spirit. So I was thinking about this this week. I thought there are two commands 
that come about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament that are warnings to me. One is, do not quench the Holy Spirit, and the other is, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. I don't understand how this works in the sovereignty of God and His desires for this world, but it seems from those passages, and we believe that all of God's Word is God-breathed, is that I can stop the work of the Spirit in my life. I can quench His desire to pour out in me. I can grieve Him and keep His life from being proved, by, uh, from being released. I never have found in Scripture a command, do not be too eager for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you see, what has happened to us, and please receive this, I'm not calling us to some form I'm calling us to openness to the Holy Spirit, but what can happen in suburban Christianity is that we become so sophisticated that we remain in control of our life that we no longer have space to say, Holy Spirit, do whatever you want, and we stop him from what he wants to do. He won't stop loving us, but we may miss the blessing he has for us. Martin Luther, who had a great impact in his life through the Great Reformation, critiqued the Holy Spirit fanatics of his day as being crazy saints. And he said this in mockery of them, they swallowed the Holy Spirit, feathers and all. Sadly, Martin Luther died a bitter, critical, racist man. If there was ever a story of someone who didn't finish well, with a promising start, maybe in those moments he began grieving the Holy Spirit and quenching what God had for them. I don't know about you, but I want to finish well. I want to go out with these words, freedom, flourishing, and fruitfulness. And I want that for us as a church. Most of you have been around long enough that you know I don't like to read to you. I'm not very good at it. But also, you can miss something. But I read something this winter that is so well stated that I didn't want to try to come up with my own words. So try to stay with this as best you can. It's from Brian McLaren, We Make the Road by Walking. In the millennia since Christ walked with us on this earth, we've often tried to box up the wind in manageable doctrines. We've exchanged the fire of the Spirit for the ice of religious pride. We've turned the wine back into water and then let the water go stagnant and lukewarm. We've traded the gentle dove of peace for the predatory hawk or eagle of empire. When we have done so, we have ended up with just another religious system, as problematic as any other. Too often petty, argumentative, judgmental, cold, hostile, bureaucratic, self-seeking, and an enemy of aliveness, and I would say an enemy of freedom. In a world full of big challenges, in a time like ours, we can't settle for a heavy and fixed religion. 
We can't try to contain the Spirit in a box. We need to experience the mighty rushing wind of Pentecost. We need our hearts to be made incandescent by the Spirit's fire. We need the living water and new wine Jesus promised so our hearts can become the home of dove-like peace. Wind, breath, fire, cloud, water, wine, a dove. When we open up the space for the Spirit and let the Spirit fill that space within us, we begin to change and we become agents of change. I'm going to add something here that I did learn from my tradition that helped me. I do believe the Holy Spirit will enlarge us too. Not only will He fill us, He'll enlarge us so more of the work will be released. To me, that's what baptism is. That's why we pause in our journey to gather together around a table of fellowship and communion. Like the disciples in the upper room at Pentecost, we present ourselves to God. We become receptive for the fullness of the Spirit to fall upon us and well up within us to blow like wind, glow like fire, flow like a river, fill like a cloud, and descend like a dove in and among us. So let us open our hearts. The reason I started doing pilgrimages a few years ago is that I started longing for the revivals of the past. The prophet Habakkuk says it this way, Lord, we've heard of your great fame indeed, do it again in our day. And there were places that seemed that God landed regularly. We have one of those blessed places here. For whatever reason, God likes to show up here. His presence is thick. But there are other places out there that I've wanted to experience as well. And Wales came to my attention because of a story I heard about Billy Graham. We lost one of our great saints to earth this past season. But I began talking to someone and I became curious about the revivals in Wales because of what happened to Billy Graham there. When he started out as a young evangelist, uh, there was some fruit in certain places, but when he went to England and to uh, Wales, there wasn't the same level of fruit. In fact, in Wales, they thought his preaching was rather pathetic because they had been used to experiencing revivals. Billy heard Stephen Olford, a young preacher to youth, preach about being filled with the Holy Spirit and went to him after the service and said, why didn't you give an altar call? If you'd given an altar call, I would have been the first one up there. I want what I see in you. For whatever reason, nothing came of that, and Billy left. And a year later, he came back to Wales, and he sought out Olford, and he said, Stephen, I want what's in you. Will you go away with me and find what that is? And for two days, they got on their face before God and His Word, and they sought the Scriptures, and they prayed together. And on the second day, Billy Graham got a baptism of the Holy Spirit. He got holy laughter and couldn't stop. And then he got crying. He couldn't stop that. The emotion of God was so released through him, he couldn't be contained. In the next days, when Billy Graham preached in Wales, there was not room for the people who were coming up along the aisles because when Billy preached that night, the power of the Holy Spirit was on his preaching. The whole towns were changed. They had to change venues three nights in a row because so many people were coming to Christ. Well, how do I know this story? I met one of the granddaughters of uh, one of the women that was saved during that process. 
So what happened? Did Billy know God before that event? Yes. Was his calling sure before that event? Yes. Was he already serving before that event? Yes. The only thing changed is that he got a filling, an outpouring of the hovering spirit on him, and the world has been changed because of that. Listen, you and I won't preach to the number of people that Billy Graham preached to. But we have the privilege of being God's agent of change in this world. And it's not going to happen with our best efforts. It's going to come by the pouring out of the Spirit. So folks, around the table, let's let the Spirit come. Amen.